through God, our Father, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. What did God do to help us? God chose the people of Israel to make a new beginning. He prepared the way for Jesus to come as our Savior. So let us now worship our Lord and our King, our God. Let us worship him as the one who gives us salvation and is our Redeemer in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Faithful God, you have opened the gate of mercy for your people. You are always ready to welcome those who turn to you. So we pray now that you would look upon us in your compassion, that we may gladly respond to your love and faithfully walk in your way through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first hymn is number 40, God is our refuge and our strength.
Blessed be God because he has not rejected our prayer or removed his steadfast love from us. In the strength of this assurance, let us confess our sins to Almighty God. Let us pray. Holy God, Father most gracious, rebuke us not in your anger, nor chasten us in your wrath. Forgive us for our iniquities. Heal us from our sin, for we are troubled. Deliver us for the sake of your steadfast love. Our sin disturbs us, O God. We are troubled by how we have hurt others. We are troubled by how they have hurt us. Your ways are right, O righteous God. And whenever we have refused to follow them, we have found out how right they are. Have mercy on us, O God. Holy God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us for the sake of your Son, who died to free us from our sins. To you be honor and glory. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Beloved of Christ, hear the good news and believe it. Now you have been set free from sin, and you have become servants of God, receiving righteousness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. We rejoice with this good news, and we say together, praise be to God. When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, redeeming them from slavery and establishing them as his own people, carving out within this world, this fallen world, a place where he would work out his purposes of redemption and salvation, with Israel, he called out and carved out a space for Israel in this world, he called his people in response to obey him, and he gave them at the heart of his covenant with them the Ten Commandments. The fifth commandment is this, Honor your father and mother. God, in his goodness, has not left us to our own devices, but has graciously provided human authorities to protect and guide and govern us. Most immediately, God has provided parents, mothers and fathers, whom we are to honor throughout our lives. As children, we are to honor our parents, respecting their authority and obeying their lawful commands. As adults, we are to continue to honor our parents by respecting them and seeing to it that they are cared for. But parents are not the only authorities that God uses to graciously protect and guide and govern us. As Christians, we are called to honor all men, fear God, and honor human authorities, as the Epistle of Peter says. What is more, we are called to exercise authority after the pattern of Christ himself. So as Christians, when we find ourselves in positions of authority, we are to follow and model the way that Christ exercised his authority. We mustn't lord it over those over whom we've been set in authority. Rather, we must serve such persons in the name of the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are to care for others and exercise our authority in a sacrificial way, in a way that's, that's best for them, that's good for them, over our own good. Uh, and many times that means we must sacrifice ourselves for them. For this reason, Christian people, I exhort you to honor and exercise authority after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is God Be Merciful to Me, number 486. Thank you. 
compassion thou blot out my transgressions now wash me make me pure within cleanse oh cleanse me from my sin my transgressions I confess grief and guilt my soul oppress I have sinned against thy grace and provoke thee to thy face I confess thy judgment just speechless I thy mercy trust I am evil born in sin thou desirest truth within thou alone my Savior art teach me wisdom to my heart make me pure thy grace bestow wash me whiter than the snow broken humble to the dust by thy wrath and judgment just let my contrite heart rejoice and in gladness hear thy voice from my sins O hide thy face blot them out in boundless grace. Gracious God, my heart renew, make my spirit right and true. Cast me not away from thee, let thy spirit dwell in me. Thy salvation's joy impart, steadfast make my willing heart. Sinners then shall learn from me, and return, O God, to Thee, Savior My tongue shall sing thy love. Touch my silent lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall praise a Let us bring our prayers for this world and for the church to our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. Almighty and sovereign God, we praise you that Jesus Christ humbled himself in order to exalt us. We praise you that though he is rich, he did for our sakes become poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Especially we praise you that Jesus, having been put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit. And that he has now gone to your right hand with angels and authorities and powers made subject to him. 
We thank you for the witness of the prophets and apostles through whom you have spoken to us. We thank you that as those who have not seen and yet believe, like Abraham and David and Daniel, we are blessed. We praise you for your sovereign and good purpose, for your good governance of your creation, and for the assurance that you are at work in all things for our good and your glory. Grant us the faith, we pray, so to believe that we might boldly live, loving, believing, witnessing, rejoicing in the name of Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers, O God, for faith. We pray for the church, the community of your grace, which you are building up in this world by your word and spirit. We thank you for this congregation, for our presbytery, for your church throughout the world, and we ask for your mercy and grace. Especially we pray for grace truly to be of one heart and and soul in Christ. Forgive our sins and correct our errors and make us to serve you by serving one another. See fit, we pray, to bless us with growth, enable us more faithfully to witness to Christ, Hear our prayers for the church and our missionaries who are working to help other churches grow and new churches to begin. We pray for Ben Westerveld in Quebec with his family, Mark Richline in Uruguay, for New City Church in Grand Rapids and their pastor, Tony Miles. And we pray for Wes Reynolds, the stated clerk of our presbytery. Hear our prayers. We pray for the world and for our nation and rulers around this world. Do not let us forget that Jesus Christ is Lord. Bring rest from conflict in Syria and Mexico, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Israel and Palestine, China and Yemen, North and the Korean Peninsula. Preserve your church in these countries. Show mercy to us in this land, in this nation where we live, May there be good policies that stop the increase of violence in our cities. We ask you to bless and guide our leaders. Especially, we pray for Joe Biden, our president, uh, for our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, for our senators, Debbie Stabenow, Gary Peters, for our representatives, and the Supreme Court as it renders its decisions. May we always obey your word and bear witness to the redemption of Christ for your creation, even as we bear witness in our own society. Hear our prayers for our nation. We pray for the elderly, that they would not be neglected. May we visit them and see to their needs. Help us to listen to their wisdom. Hear our prayers for the older people that we know. We pray for those who are sick, for those who suffer, for those who are discouraged, for those who are struggling. We do give you thanks for the healing and renewal and protection that you give to us and that we have received in many ways this past week. And now we do pray for those who are in difficult situations with health, body, mind. Here are prayers for Luca and Julie, for Fawn, Eduardo, Frida. Jeff, and for our friends Becky and Chris and Angie, Karen, Bob, Tom, Phil, 
Dominic, Tammy's family, as well as those we name to you in silence. We give you thanks for hearing our prayers and acting upon them according to your will. For the ministry of the word made effective by your spirit and for the preservation of this congregation, we pray, continue to give us your grace. May we be witnesses to your salvation in Jesus Christ here and in every place we live. And bring many more people to Christ and into the family of his church. And now, Almighty Father, ruler of all things in heaven and earth, accept the prayers of your people and strengthen us to do your will in the new life of your spirit. Through Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray, to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. And now let us pray our prayer for illumination. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, which is our very life. It's not an idle word, as the scriptures remind us. It is not an idle word, but indeed our very life. And 
we uh, are grateful for it. We pray that you would open our, our hearts and our minds this morning to receive uh, your word, um, that we receive Christ as he is preached in the gospel. We pray this in his name. Amen. We begin in Daniel. Chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, (coughs) Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, but there is but one, sen- there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested to the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Now we turn to our Psalter reading. Praise the Lord. In the company of the upright in the congregation. Studied by all who delight in them. And his righteousness endures forever. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He remembers his covenant forever. In giving them the inheritance of the nations. All his precepts are trustworthy. To be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He has commanded his covenant forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His praise endures forever. And now our epistle reading in Ephesians chapter 3, the first 13 verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, which was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And finally, our gospel reading in John, chapter 16. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. king was agitated, and if the ruler was agitated, so was his court, and so was the whole kingdom. Verse 1 of our lesson in Daniel says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. It was the psychologist Sigmund Freud who gave us our modern understanding of dreams as gateways into an individual's subconscious. However, before the modern era, dreams were believed to be glimpses into the unknown or a source of divine enlightenment. The Babylonians were highly interested in dreams. The Babylonians believed dreams were a possible source for information about strange events, like comets that would pass by or something unusual in the skies and the heavens, or something unusual that happened here on earth that was happening in the world, or what was happening to them. And they classified dreams into several types. The dreams of rulers and leaders, such as priests, were considered one type. Those dreams of the common people were another type. And there was also a division between good dreams and bad dreams. It was believed that there were omens of good and bad luck in dreams, regarding money, romance, health, those kinds of things. But it was also believed that dreams gave knowledge of major events that would happen to a kingdom and to the future of a people. The Babylonians were so obsessed with dreams that they collected data on dreams and they compiled it on tablets, lots and lots of tablets, clay tablets. They were written down and these records were stored together for consultation when needed. A large part of Babylonian literature was these dream tablets. 
Daniel, as a member of the court, would have been expected to know these writings. In chapter 1, verse 4 of Daniel, it says, The king charged the eunuchs to teach Daniel and his friends the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the literature would have included these dream tablets. Over time, the tablets were copied, they were put into collections, and they have been called dream books. Some of these Babylonian tablets on dreams have been found, quite a few actually, and they're in museums. There's a museum in um, uh, Penn State has a museum there, and it's, it has some of these um, tablets on them uh, in the museum, and they have some description of them, an explanation of them. There's been a lot of archaeological work done to understand them. The uh, Akkadian, the Babylonian language, was learned, and they can actually read these tablets. Scholars believe there's information on, da- on dreams in these tablets that they contain, in some cases, dream, uh, information that goes all the way back to 5000 B.C. Because before the Babylonian nation, there was the Akkadian and these Sumerian and other, um, other kingdoms that um, would have been doing the same thing. And so there's a long, long history of collecting data on dreams with these tablets. Given the value of dreams for secret things, the Babylonians highly prized, uh, uh, considered dreams very important and highly prized the information they could glean from them, they gathered as many dreams as they could and they carefully listed out the details of the dreams. What were the figures in the dreams? You think about your dreams. There are all kinds of little things in there. They might be really weird. Um, Babylonians considered that to be, they were strange because they're coming from a different source. They're not coming from the normal human ways of thinking and and, uh, interacting. So what were the figures in the dreams? Um, What were the actions in the dreams? And then they would interpret these things. They looked for omens in the dreams. The wise men would collect all this data. And then using the information they had amassed, and they're listing it all out, they'd break it down, list it all out, they would then divine or interpret the dreams. These interpretations were listed on the tablets with all the data. So the data is being listed, and there'd be columns, and then on one side or somewhere along with the tablet would be um, the interpretations that they gave for the details in the dreams. For instance, one dream tablet lists the action of looking around in dreams. You've ever had a dream where you're looking around? I've had a few of those. And so they would see that as an action, and they would give this interpretation. If he or she gazed toward the right, his adversary will die. If he or she gazes toward the left, his adversary will overcome him. And if he or she looked backward, he will not attain his desire. So that was the interpretation given for that action of looking around in a dream. So to put it loosely, dreams were a big deal to the Babylonians. And as we hear in our reading from Daniel, they were of great consequence to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he didn't know what it meant. The ESV, our reading from the pulpit, says that Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. And to flesh this out a bit more, it might be better to say, or we might define that a little more carefully, as he was deeply agitated. As a Babylonian, he believed dreams gave insight into big things, especially when it was the dream of a king. And Nebuchadnezzar was worried. What did the dream mean for his rule? Was he about to be knocked off his throne? He was anxious about his kingdom, 
was a monumental change coming by which his kingdom would be defeated by another kingdom. Should he prepare for war? Was everything okay or not? He wanted to know. Highly agitated, the king called his sages, his wise men, the diviners of secret things, those who collected knowledge, data, and wrote out the tablets of the dreams. He called these people in his court to himself. And in the story, there's a tense interaction between the king and the wise men of the court. It begins with King Nebuchadnezzar, who summons the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Chaldeans here, by the way, because we have a lot of uh, a large community of Chaldeans today in this Detroit metropolitan area. Chaldeans here is a little bit different. Um, it, it's referring to a, a guild, a group of wise men, um, not so much a race. It wasn't an ethnicity as much as a guild in the court. And there were different guilds in the court that studied the hidden things in order to give counsel to the kings. And that's what was being listed out here. The enchanters, the sorcerers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, these are like different guilds or unions, you might say, although I don't think they had much union right. But um, they were to give counsel to the king. And from their work, wisdom was to be given, was supposed to be given to the king. These various wise men quickly made their way to the courtroom. They had been summoned by the king. You don't dilly-dally when you're summoned by the king. They quickly made their way to the courtroom, and they lined up, probably in their groups, in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. And his eyes darted from one to the next, nervous and on edge. And he said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The groups of wise men looked at each other, and finally the Chaldeans spoke up. They spoke with great respect. O king, live forever. And then they punted the ball back to the king. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. You see, they needed to know the content of the dream so that they could consult their dream books in order to decode it. With the dream told to them, they could find the right tablets that listed the same data, and they could read how it, was, how it had been divined in the past. And once this was done, then they could bring the interpretation to the king. The agitation of the king increased. He pounded his fist on his chair and said, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. And then I put it in capitals in my text here. Therefore, show me the dream with its interpretation. He's insistent. The king's blood was boiling, and he raised the stakes with his demand with a threat and a promise. His anxiety and insecurity had turned into rage. Nebuchadnezzar was desperate to know what was going to happen to him and to his kingdom, and he was not sure he could trust his wise men to tell him. The wise men could only act according to their craft of collecting data and interpreting it. What else could they do? Their wisdom was not sufficient to tell the king his dream. All they could say in response to the king was, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. Verse 7. One more final time, exasperated, desperately wanting to know, the king pushed back at the wise men, tell me the meaning of this dream. And he accused his wise men of trying to deceive him. Neither side could give in. 
The wise men, helplessly trapped in their insufficient wisdom, confessed their limitations. In verse 10 they say, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The king's dream was hidden to them. Their wisdom could not go into the hidden things. So the truth had come out. All of those dream books, all of the data they had collected, all of their knowledge did not amount to much. The hidden things were still hidden. Stuck with the limits of the wise men's response, the king's anxiety, insecurity, fear, and panic churned into fury. And in what, in what best might be described as volcanic hysteria, the king commanded all the magicians, the sorcerers, the enchanters, and the Chaldeans in his kingdom to be killed. He saw them as tricksters, claiming to do more than they could do. The dialogue between the king and his wise men had become a contest about wisdom and how to gain it. In our post-Christian society, knowledge is highly valued. God has given humanity the ability to discover and study and explore and gather vast amounts of knowledge about the world and the universe we lived in. I remember playing a game. I can't remember the name of the game, but it's one of those games where you're, you're, you're supposed to be have a lot of knowledge about a lot of different things in, in pop culture and in the world and all of that. So I was playing it with my family, um, and the question came, I got this question, um, how, how, how many species, um, what percentage of species do we not know today? Or how many, how many species have not been discovered yet, estimate, you know, have been discovered yet in this world by scientists? I thought, well, most of them, you know, so let's say 90%. My brother kind of scoffed at me. <laughs> and he had the card, and so he said, no, just 20%. We've only discovered 20%. I still am puzzling over that. Is that true? But anyway, somebody's figured that out, and they, they estimate that there's still 80% more species, insects, things like that, to discover. And yet, we've discovered a lot. We really have. We have all this knowledge. With the aid of reason, we have collected data about minuscule atoms, and they keep finding you know, little uh, uh, parts of atoms and massive stars. We've opened up genes in the body. We've captured viruses in petri dishes. We've looked for evidence for the beginning of our planet and the universe. And because of this meticulous work of scientific study, we now have a plethora of fields of study. We have biology, zoology, physics, sociology, archaeology, economics, political science, astronomy, historiography, and on and on it goes. All these different fields of study. We've collected vast amounts of knowledge about the world and the universe we live in. And yet, our society is deeply insecure. Human nature is really, in this respect, no different today than it was when Nebuchadnezzar was king. He wanted to know the hidden things, the secrets of what will happen to us, what will happen to our society, what is the course of history, what is our future. We don't know. In our society, our society doesn't know. Post-Christian society is clever. It leaves God out of history and out of our future, and then it confidently asserts that we can make our own future. But that still begs the question, what is our future? Where is our present moment in time headed? And on a personal level, people in our society believe each one of us can make our own future be whatever we want it to be. But as empowering as that sounds, what is my future? 
There are all kinds of young people today who really are, are trapped. They're frozen. What do I do with my life? What, 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 is, what is the meaning for me? What, what am I supposed to pursue? And they're, they're stuck, and they have all these options because we live in a rather affluent society where there is a lot of option, a lot of ability to, to go different ways. And so they're just, they feel trapped. They don't know what to do because they don't know what their future is and what, what, they, what would be best for them. It's even more unclear when we factor in everybody else pushing their own future desires on the rest of us. How do I get the future that I want when other people push their vision of the future on me? And it still begs the question, what is the future for us? What is going to happen in history? It's hidden to us. It's an impenetrable darkness. And so, along with all the bravado and assurances that we can be reasonably sure that this will happen or that will happen, we are deeply insecure as a post-Christian society. In 2019, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey that focused on what Americans think the United States will be like in the year 2050. And this survey, of course, is before COVID. It found that majorities of Americans foresee a country with a burgeoning national debt, a wider gap between the rich and the poor, and a workforce threatened by automation. Majorities predicted that the economy will be weaker, healthcare will be less affordable, the condition of the, economy, of the environment will be worse, and older Americans will have a harder time making ends meet than they do now. Also predicted a terrorist attack as bad as or worse than 9-11 sometime over the next 30 years. And now in 2023, just this last couple of weeks or, well, in the last uh, not too long ago, there's, there's been a developing worry about Vladimir Putin and a nuclear explosion. And just this week, a report from NASA came out that an asteroid the size of a swimming pool is on a trajectory that could crash into the Earth on Valentine's Day in 2046. <laughs> so you better tell your loved one you love them before then. So all these things are fears and insecurities and worries and instability about what's going to happen, yet we don't know. Because people have made all these predictions, made predictions of various kinds before, and they didn't turn out, or they turned out very differently. We don't know. And so we have this sense of, of panic and, 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 and concern and, and agitation about the future, and we have some guesses about what might happen, but we don't know. American post-Christian society has accumulated enormous stores of knowledge, and yet we are fearful and anxious because we don't know what is going to happen. We don't know the hidden things. Well, over and against the insecurity and escalating hysteria of King Nebuchadnezzar's court is Daniel. Daniel learned that the king had decreed the death of all the wise men of Babylon, and he approached the captain of the guard. He forestalled him, and he said, he asked, why is the decree of the king urgent? This is verse 15. Now, how did Daniel react? His life was on the line, just like all the other wise men, but he did not react with fear, nor was he despondent. There's no hint of that in the story. He did not groan, all is lost for us. Neither was he agitated, disturbed, and anxious. You see, Daniel is a study in contrast to the king. Compared to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is calm and stable. Throughout his interaction with the king, Daniel is constant. 
Now, our lesson this morning sets Daniel before us as a model of faith in God in a pagan society. Daniel trusts God. He went to his community of friends and told them of the king's agitation, anxiety, and the king's decree. And then he asked them all to pray to God. Daniel told them to ask mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery of the king's dream. Pray that God will reveal to them the wisdom that was needed for the king. So in the midst of the turmoil and insecurity of the Babylonian court, Daniel steadfastly went to God. Daniel trusts God. He's also expectant, which, is, which also rightly belongs to faith, an expectancy with God. Faith in God knows that life does not end in a dead end or in emptiness. Faith has hope in God. And in the New, in the New Testament, faith and hope are interchangeable, such as in Hebrews 10, verse 23, which talks about the confession of our hope. Wouldn't we normally say the confession of our faith? But it says the confession of our hope, and then it it goes on and talks about that. The revelation of God is not just the communication of knowledge. It makes things happen. So it's a hope that participates in what God is doing. The dark door of time, the hidden future is thrown open, and so with faith there is hope. Daniel has this kind of faith in God, faith with hope. He prays to God with trust, and he hopes that God gives wisdom to his people. And it's not just uh, just sort of a, a wanting something to happen, but it's a confidence that God does do that. Daniel is also a model of faith in God because he's grateful. He trusts, his faith has hope, and he's grateful. His gratitude is expressed in the opening of his prayer in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Today we use the word bless as a wish. Have a blessed day. But for the Jews, to bless someone is a solemn expression of one's appreciation, gratitude, honor, and recognition of that person. So it's different than the way we use it today, or at least there is a difference. For example, here's a story from 2 Samuel. When Toi, the king of the city of Hamath, heard that King David of Israel had defeated the whole army of another king, who was their common enemy, named Hadadazer, Toei sent his son to King David to bless him because he had fought against Hedadezer and defeated him. The blessing was one of recognition. You helped me. You defeated my enemy. Gratitude, thank you for defeating my enemy, and honor. You are the great one who defeated my enemy. Daniel's blessing recognizes that the Lord is the God of heaven, the ruler of the kings over the kings of earth and the source of wisdom. And therefore, God deserves to be thanked, and Daniel blesses him. Daniel also is grateful to God for his faithful character that God has revealed to Israel. God revealed himself to Israel as the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. In our lesson, Daniel prays, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. The God of my fathers, the God who had had chosen Israel and had created this nation and had made his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. God is true to who he is. He's not unstable and volatile like King Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one who has revealed himself a certain way to Israel, and he was faithful to that all along. Daniel is thankful to God for this faithfulness of God. Faith trusts God, it has hope in God, and it is grateful to God. Daniel has faith in God, and therefore he is stable and at rest. In our uh, post-Christian society, we might very well find ourselves in turbulence, fear, anxiety, and stress. I know I do. I drive by old church buildings, empty and quiet, or church properties that have been purchased by developers who turn them into condominiums and businesses like what they're doing back here to the school. And I wonder what, happens, what happened to those congregations. And an insecurity starts to rise up within me. What will happen to the Christian church in America? As our society changes and old institutions are destroyed, I fear the future. It's easy to tear things down. Little kids can do that. And some things in American society needed to be torn down. But it takes much more knowledge of what a good society is and character to build up a society. And I don't see much of that in our current politics. So a disturbance grows within me. God speaks to us with Daniel and this story to have faith in the God of heaven, in the God of our fathers. And here is why. It's important that we understand this. God is the source of wisdom. Verse 21, Daniel blesses God. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. God is the sovereign Lord over history and the nations. And much of the book of Daniel is about that, and we'll come back to that in subsequent sermons. But for now, I want to draw your attention to wisdom belonging to God. And Daniel's not talking about common wisdom. God, in his, in his mercy to his creation, has given common wisdom, the wisdom anyone can gain in the world from learning its subjects and its ways. Brilliance is not required for common wisdom. We can learn common wisdom from relationships, for running a business, for politics, for international affairs. It's not just knowledge. It's having insight into what is virtuous and fruitful, what is good for a society. And it's good to learn this kind of, of wisdom, but that's not the kind of wisdom that Daniel's talking about. Daniel is talking about wisdom revealed by God about the hidden things concerning history and kingdoms and God's plan. That's wisdom that we cannot find through careful study of the things of this world. That's wisdom that human beings cannot achieve. It's wisdom that can only come from God. No one knows these hidden things or secrets of God. He must reveal them to us or we will not know them. And the good news is that God does reveal the hidden things to us. In his prayer, Daniel acknowledges that God reveals deep and hidden things, verse 22. And Daniel praises God, saying, For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter, verse 23. God has wisdom of all things. There's nothing that God, not, not that he doesn't, it's not that he just knows about it. He has wisdom about it. And see, it's not a passive wisdom. He, he isn't just observing and seeing and studying. God's wisdom is an active wisdom. He creates with it. 
He created the universe with his wisdom. He structured the world and history with his wisdom. He morally orders his creation with his wisdom. The wisdom in the, in the writings in the Bible teach this to us, like Proverbs 8, where wisdom is personified and says, When God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, then, uh, then I was beside him like a master workman. It's active wisdom. Job says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. God has made known his hidden active wisdom to Israel, and Daniel prayed that God would make it known to him for Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The reason Daniel is calm and stable is because he knows there is one who has the wisdom of the hidden things, And that one is the Lord, the God of heaven. Daniel has faith in God. He is expectant that the Lord will make the hidden things known because God is the God who speaks and reveals himself to Israel. Now, God has done more than give Daniel wisdom. He has sent to us Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John, in many ways, is a book of wisdom, the wisdom of Jesus Christ. It begins this way. John opens with these words, in the beginning was the Logos, we would translate it the word, but in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, he was in the beginning with God. And that word Logos is a very complex word. It it properly is translated word, but it can also be understood as the wisdom of God. John says, in him was life, and the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And that's how the gospel opens. Now listen to that. We tend to think of ourselves as being in the light, like right now. We look around, we see light. We, can, we, we think of ourselves as in the light, and we're trying to look into God, and all we see is darkness because we can't see the hidden things of God. But John turns all this around and says, we are in darkness, and in God there is light, And that light shines into the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light that comes from God into the world, revealing the hidden things. This is just sort of the preview, the the beginning of the Gospel of John, which is very much a gospel, but it's also the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ embodies the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ reveals the hidden things of God's purpose for this world. He reveals God's power over sin, death, and the devil. He reveals God's rule over kings and the nations of this world. He reveals God's grace and salvation. He reveals God's justice and judgment of this world. These are things hidden within God unless he actively reveals them, and he does through Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus does not just show the hidden things of God's wisdom. He is the hidden purpose of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in our epistle lesson in Ephesians 3. He says to the church, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery of Christ is what was hidden in God, but God has made this mystery known to his apostles and consequently through them to the church. The mystery of Christ is God's plan of salvation for the world. As Paul says, that God makes the Gentiles partakers of the promise of God's salvation in Jesus Christ in Ephesians 3. 
And in chapter 1 of Ephesians, God, uh, Paul talks about God summing up all things into Jesus Christ. This is talking about God's purpose for all things, for the world, for everything. Christ does not just reveal the mystery of God's hidden wisdom. He is God's wisdom. Daniel received God's wisdom for Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We have received the fullness of God's wisdom for this world with Jesus Christ. God's wisdom has come to us, and this means we can be calm, secure, and at rest in this world. We know the hidden things of God. Not all the details, but the general purpose of God. God's ruling over the nations, even with all their turmoil and instability. God's plan of salvation for this world. There are many upheavals and disasters and sinful actions that happen in this world, but God is bringing it all around to Christ, who is the salvation of the world and the judge of the living and the dead. We can't make our security and future in this world. And we can keep trying, but we're always going to, to run into that, that wall, that block of our limitations. We can't make our security and future in this world. We have to let go of that. But our inability does not mean there is no hidden purpose. Just because we can't do it and we can't figure it out doesn't mean there isn't one. It's in God, and he works it out in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ the wisdom of God gives us calm and rest like Daniel. So receive, receive these words of Christ to his disciples in our gospel lesson from, from John chapter 16. In me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let us pray. O God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such faith in your wisdom, Jesus Christ, that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith with the creed. Let us confess together. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. Amen.
Our first hymn is number, uh, not our first hymn, our next hymn is number 109, Lord, My Weak Thoughts in Vain Would Climb. members of his one body. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We do welcome to this table all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ, and are community members in good standing of the Christian church. You are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ, a sorrow for and willingness to turn from sin, and a determination in reliance upon God's grace to lead a godly life in peace with and love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian people, today we have been reminded that the hidden purpose of God for history and the nations is made known to us in Jesus Christ. And this day we've confessed our sins, we have received the assurance of God's forgiveness, we've heard his call to live in love. As you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in him, and strengthened by the sacrament, rest and be at peace, even in the midst of the agitation of our society. And come to this meal with joy, rejoice in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, be strengthened by his gifts, and find here the grace you need to follow where he leads. 
Please join me with me in giving thanks for God uh, to God for our salvation and new life in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Almighty God, good Father to us all, your face is turned towards your world. In love you gave us Jesus, your Son, to rescue us from sin and death. And your word goes out to call us home to the city where the angels sing your praise. And the whole host of heaven joins them in song, and we join them too here on earth. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Father of all, we give you thanks for every gift that comes from heaven. To the darkness, Jesus came as your light. With the grace of your salvation and the gospel word, he touched sinners and healed those who were sick and washed the guilty clean. We remember how the crowds came out to see your son, and yet in the end, they turned on him. On the night he was betrayed, he came to table with his friends to celebrate the freedom that he would bring, the freedom from sin and from death and the devil that he would bring for your people. Jesus blessed you, Father, for the food. He took bread, he gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples. He also gave the cup to his disciples and said, Do this in remembrance of me. And therefore, Father, with this bread and this cup, we celebrate the cross on which Jesus died to set us free from sin. Defying death, he rose again and is alive with you to plead for us in your whole church. By your Spirit, uniting us with Christ, may our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup be for us a communion in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all who share this food offer ourselves to live for you and be welcomed at your feast in heaven where all creation worships you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With one voice we offer our thanksgiving and together we say, Amen. The Lord Jesus took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the living bread that came that comes out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Gracious God, who loves us all, in the sacrament we are one family in Christ your Son, one in the sharing of His body and blood, one in the communication, in the communion of His Spirit. Help us to grow in love for one another and come to the full maturity of the body of Christ. We make our prayer through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The final hymn is number 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard?
give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. And the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. It appears I'm about a week late with that petition to, uh, to resist the observation of daylight saving time. Uh, we'll have to wait till this fall. I'll get that paperwork to you. I'm tired of these time changes. Um, anyway, we have Christian education today. That class will take place at 1145. We have our Thursday night Bible study. Our next Friday evening prayer is the 17th, which is this Friday, right? Do we know where that is? It's here at the church. Okay. And so we have been talking about... um, convening a meeting after worship so the congregation, we can have a conversation about some of the things the session has been considering about just future possibilities for Providence. And we want to announce that meeting for, it's Palm Sunday, I believe, April 2nd. So that's two weeks? No, three three weeks. So please plan on please plan on being here for that conversation. That will follow worship that day. And if you'll notice, that, that basically bumps, um, will take the place of the fellowship meal. And with um, the following Sunday being Easter, um, I, I think essentially that means we forego our fellowship meal here at the church until May, realistically. Because I think it's a lot for the ladies, you know, to, and many of whom will be hosting Easter and then try to get a fellowship meal in at the end of the month and then have one again May, first Sunday of May. So let's just say no fellowship meal. doesn't mean you can't meet for lunch somewhere, but um, I don't think we'll officially have that. Um, in lieu of... Um, or in deference to this meeting. Congregational meeting, April 2nd. Um, and Mike is apparently not busy, too busy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so that's all I have. Uh, Heidi Wilson. I'm just going to say, uh, I'll get it in the bulletin next week. It's a Good Friday service um, on Good Friday. There will, will be a service here. At uh, one o'clock is when we do that. Um, 
trying to think if there was something else. Oh, and then just keep praying for the Presbytery, different churches in the Presbytery. Living Hope, it's a mission work over south of Grand Rapids and Harvest in Grand Rapids. And, uh, those are the two big ones that jump up. But they're, you know, just pray for the Presbytery. Don't stop praying because there's a lot of things going on. Mrs. Wilson. <clears throat> to attribute Stephen's playing to the fact that I'm wearing his favorite colors today. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I would say about that hymn that teaches you patience because you have to hold those whole notes and half notes. Because I always want to rush the half notes. So that's a hymn that... Yeah, but it's good. I like that. I want to practice that. Hope we I hope we do it again. For for the uh, for the prayer meet for the prayer here at the church on Friday, Heidi is going to bring Irish stew. So just work around that menu, that entree. Oh, let her know. Let her know if you're coming. And Heidi also did um, offer praise for having survived a nasty fall at work this week. Um, So we're grateful for God's protection of her. Okay, that's all.